This program is brought to you by the Financing and Deploying Clean Energy Program at the Yale Center for Business and the Environment. We're a joint program at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale School of Management with a mission to accelerate the financing and deployment of clean energy with an eye to equity. Welcome back to another episode of the Yale Clean Energy Future podcast, where we explore the intersections of the COVID-19 pandemic and the clean energy transition. Today is the last episode in our mini-series on rural energy. There are three types of reserved federal land in the U.S., the U.S. military land, public lands, and Indian land. This week, let's look at energy production on that final land use reservations, particularly Western reservation land. Indigenous reservations make up 2% of U.S. lands, or about 56.2 million acres, according to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. That's the federal unit within the Department of the Interior that maintains the government-to-government relationships with tribal governments. Reservations hold about 6% of utility-scale renewable energy potential and about 20% of oil and gas reserves. I asked our first guest, Cassie Brosimer, about the history of non-renewable resource extraction on indigenous lands. She's the environmental director for the Sioux St. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians and a PhD candidate in energy and environmental policy at Michigan Tech. The Navajo actually have contributed energy resources to the larger society for more than 100 years. Oil was discovered on Navajo land more than 100 years ago. And in fact, the U.S. government set up the whole idea of federal recognition of a tribal government to make it possible for energy companies to make deals with the Navajo to extract oil there. So in 1887, the General Allotment Act was passed. This divided some reservations into individual parcels. And that kind of land ownership was in contrast to traditional ways of land management for the Native people. And it eventually made resource extraction on Native lands really difficult. Because as you can imagine, if you have an interested corporation that wants mineral resources under tribal land, but it has to have approval from scores and scores of people, it all of a sudden becomes really complicated. But the Indian Reorganization Act, or the IRA, of 1934 ended allotment. It meant that some mineral rights were returned to tribes instead of individuals. But some nations never regained their approval authority over mining projects, and that includes the Navajo Nation. Since then, they've given uranium, they've had coal extracted on their lands, they've had coal-fired power plants put up on their lands. On Navajo land, perhaps the most famous coal plant is the Navajo Generating Station. You might have seen it if you've ever driven through Page, Arizona or past Lake Powell. Before the plant's closure in late 2020, it provided electricity, but not the Navajo Nation, which you might have expected. Instead, it provided electricity to the cities of the Southwest, as well as pumped water from the Colorado River to population centers in Arizona and California. According to data sourced from the EPA, the Navajo Generating Station was one of the top 10 dirtiest polluting power stations in the U.S., ranked by carbon emissions. While the plant was operational, its pollution was responsible for an estimated 29 deaths per year, 369 annual asthma attacks, and more than 1,700 workdays lost annually. The plant is also partially responsible for heightened COVID deaths in the Four Corners region. The rate of COVID deaths in the Navajo Nation is higher than the U.S. as a whole. The Navajo Nation COVID-19 dashboard reported over 1,500 COVID deaths as of January 2022. That's almost 1% of the total population living on the Navajo Nation. 
According to the same Harvard study that we referenced in an earlier episode, the high death rate was in part attributed to the air pollution from the coal-fired power plants in the Four Corners region. We interviewed Jessica Kitso, a grassroots organizer at Tonejona Ane, the organization that played a key role in shutting down the Navajo generating station. Yade she Jessica Kitso yinishye shishinishle sedeshkizni bashishchin bilagana dashche bifatotni dashinale sitlejin de nasha. My name is Jessica Kitso. I am a community organizer for the organization Tonejona Ane, which translates as Sacred Water Speaks. Some people also use the acronym TNA, and I am a Diné woman from Black Mesa, Arizona. It's a part of the Navajo Nation. It's located in the northeastern part of Arizona. The region that I come from, a lot of the things that we do revolve around our livestock and our relationship to the land. And we also happen to be sitting on the largest coal deposits in the Southwest. So the coal from these seams was extracted from Black Mesa and then burned at nearby Navajo Generating Station to power the Central Arizona Project, which took the water from the Colorado River hundreds of miles to Tucson and Phoenix. Both of those operations, they employ majority Navajo workers. And it was a real source of conflict, especially for like the co-founders and the board members and the elders for our communities, because these workers were our relatives and we go by a kinship system called Keh. And it basically, it's a really great system. It helps you relate to not only other Navajo people, but also helps you relate to the natural world around you. But through that system, we had relations with all of those people who worked at the, both the mine and the power plant. And it was a real source of conflict because they would be telling us every day, like, you know, you can't do this. You're taking away my source of income. And it was really, that part of it was really hard. And it was really heartbreaking. Yeah, this transition is really hard. And that's something we've tried to emphasize before. When we talk about a just clean energy transition, we don't just mean renewable energy. We also mean diversifying the economy to make it serve everyone. We do a lot of like food sovereignty projects. And this year we were building hoop houses for farmers. And then they were sharing the produce with the community. We're having like farmers markets and different things like that. So that really helps people like on an individual basis. It helps give them access to like higher quality food at a lower price. So one of the projects that Tony Joni Ani has proposed was to add solar to a federally designated brownfield near Black Mesa. A brownfield is a piece of land that has been designated as cleaned up after some kind of environmental contamination. As you can imagine, there's a lot of hesitation to use that land in normal ways. And so putting something like solar or wind is actually a really great use. But pushing for projects like that on the reservation and even fighting against unwanted solar projects requires a lot of community organization. And that's really true for any environmental policy. I'm trying to give people the information that is not readily available and I'm trying to make it digestible for people and I'm trying to translate it from English into, into Navajo and 
I look at the policy and what different parts of the policy are not working. And I give it to the community and I give it to people. And I'm like, we got to say something because if we don't say anything, then instead of having like coal barons, we're going to have like solar barons. Jessica and her team are now in the process of creating this community-informed post-fossil fuel economy. To understand the truly transformative nature of this work, we need to spend some time explaining how the traditional energy economy depresses economic growth and health on reservations. We talked previously about energy access, how poverty, often the result of systemic oppression, has resulted in high energy burdens for some communities. The tribes that we currently work with, the Northern Cheyenne, the Standing Rock Sioux, and many other tribes in our country are impacted to this day by the history of European colonization and violence. Broken treaties, forced assimilation, and something that people don't really think about much, the lack of any tangible economy since the deliberate extermination of the buffalo colonists have resulted in extreme pressures placed on native people for centuries, even until today, those pressures exist. So it's been a, you know, a trickle down effect over centuries. So as a result, these tribes are among the poorest and most socially disadvantaged people in America. That's Sherry Smith. She's the founder of Indigenized Energy Initiative, formerly known as Covenant Solar Initiative, which seeks to end indigenous poverty, restore sovereignty, and fight climate change through the power of distributed solar. The initiative started in the Northern Cheyenne, the tribe that remains impoverished, as Sherry described, despite the decades-old discovery of extremely valuable coal seams under the Northern Cheyenne and Standing Rock Sioux lands. This tantalizing resource literally is, is simmering on the surface of their land. Sometimes it catches fire in the heat and in lightning, right? But it's worth billions of dollars and they leave it there. So time and time again, this tribe has voted to, quote, keep it in the ground rather than allow arch coal to mine it. These were tough votes. It tore the community apart at times because you, you're faced with poverty and you're looking at your neighbors to the east who have all kinds of wonderful things, you know, nice schools and, you know, nice standards of living and jobs because they mine coal. So you can imagine the internal strife within the community, but the resolve remained. We go back to how much is tied into these decisions about energy. And to give a sense of how difficult this decision is, Sherry describes what limited energy access combined with poverty looks like on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. The homes with electricity have inefficient heat and inadequate insulation. They're like FEMA trailers, the homes on that are built by the um, tribal housing authorities. People can't afford the discriminatorily high electric bills, so the utilities disconnect their power. Okay, so some context for that. Jurisdictional issues on Indian lands are very complicated. To start with, there's not just one type of Indian land tenure, but three. Here what's important is that there's no unified approach to utility regulation, and therefore tariffs and rate making, on Indian country. This makes sense since we're talking about sovereign governments. Usually your local tariffs for gas, power, water are regulated by your local public utility commission. But in Indian country, it's not quite so straightforward. Sometimes tariffs are regulated by the state, sometimes by the tribal government, and sometimes due to a treaty or a federal law, the federal government might have a say. It depends on a lot of factors, including whether the people being served by the utility are Indian or non-Indian, whether the utility was established by non-members, whether all or part of the tariff may be seen as a tax, and more. 
The lack of efficient housing compounds with tariffs to give us expensive energy systems. So what you should remember for now is that in a lot of places, Indian energy costs are very high and much higher than the national average. In the Standing Rock Reservation and the neighboring Cheyenne River Reservation, for instance, energy costs are roughly double the national average for the poorest 30% of the population. On the Cheyenne and Standing Rock Reservations, where most of our work is focused right now, the electric bills for a small home with a family of four or five exceed $900 a month in winter. People who live on reservations are consistently charged rates that are much higher than their non-native neighbors that like literally you can see the house over there, um, sometimes as much as double. They're charged double what white people are charged. Remember that we're talking about the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. The average high temperatures in winter are still below freezing, and so you need a heat source of some kind in order to survive. But because indigenous peoples in this country have been dispossessed and pushed to the least hospitable lands, they often lack resources like forests, which sounds basic, but it means you don't have any wood to burn to stay warm. So they burn anything they can find to keep warm. They're burning trash and tires, and they burn them inside. When they run out of things to burn, people die of exposure to cold in their own homes, most of them elders who are too proud to ask for help. The experience that I had seeing this poverty as an adult when I went to the Northern Cheyenne Reservation transported me back to my six-year-old self. And I am a descendant of the Mi'kmaq tribe of the Canadian Maritimes in Northern Maine. And my three times great grandmother, Lucy Wood, was a healer, a medicine woman and a midwife. So I, I didn't grow up native. I grew up as a white kid. In fact, we were we were not allowed to speak about our, our native ancestry. But my great grandmother used to take me to the reservation in the community where she lived in Maine. And I had a profound experience there as a six year old witnessing poverty for the first time. And it left an indelible mark on my on me. I, I couldn't wrap my brain around how Native Americans who were here first, you know, we were taught that in, in white people's school. Um, how could they be living pov in poverty like right over there in our backyard? I felt guilty. I felt helpless. Right. How could we? And I said it to my great grandmother and my grandmother. I'm like, how can we let this happen? They were they were here first. This is America. And they told me to shh and not talk about it. So flash forward to 2016, rolling into Lame Deer, Montana on the Northern Cheyenne Res, I was six again. And it was the same feeling. And I'm looking around going, how can this be America? But this time I could do something about it. And Sherry definitely did something about it. Here's what she did. This tribal council in 2016 adopted a series of unprecedented resolutions, which forsake like fossil fuels and endorsed renewable energy. And in March of that year, finally conceding the strength of the tribe's convictions and largely due to the efforts of a young woman named Vanessa Braided Hair and her dad, Otto Braided Hair, who's our executive director, Arch Coal reluctantly withdrew its 40-year-old mining application. So the mine and the railroad were shut down by grassroots activism of Northern Cheyenne tribal members. And not only did this affect the Northern Cheyenne, you know, the mine would be destructive to their water system, Otter Creek. The railroad would destroy uh, pasture land and sacred homelands of not only the Northern Cheyenne, but other tribes all the way to the Washington coast where the coal was being offloaded for shipment to China. It wasn't even 
slated for use here. You might be wondering, what's so different about the economic opportunities of clean energy that excite the tribal members Sherry's been working with? So an increasing number of American Indian leaders believe that solar energy, free energy from the sun, has the potential to make deep and lasting change in their communities. In fact, they have come to believe that solar might be the last shot they have at truly turning things around and setting their communities on a new path towards the self-determination and independence that they once possessed. Now we're kind of getting the picture of how transformative Native-run clean energy opportunities are for Indigenous members. All of a sudden, you're able to stay warm and safe from indoor air pollution all winter, and you're saving potentially hundreds of dollars a month, which can go to build that generational wealth. We learn more than we teach. And this is unique. Um, existing and previous efforts to deploy solar in Indian country have really, they've largely focused on one-off externally managed projects. They have value, but they don't address the core issue of energy poverty in native communities. And so our approach is different because it's oriented towards capacity building in this systemic and holistic way, which will result in long-term economic development and job creation. So we're not just coming in, dumping a system with most of the benefit going to the developer. Um, we work together with tribes to impart the knowledge and skills and tools required to eliminate the extractive systems in their portfolios and to implement solar themselves, right? They are doing the work. They are implementing the regenerative systems. Key strategies of the initiative are creating jobs, relocalizing energy economies with the goal of not only keeping 100% of the money spent on energy within the community, but actually, we actually um, have set up a system where they will earn a return on it. And we did that via the highly innovative component of our model, a revolving fund, the financial mechanism we created in collaboration with Yale and the cohort of 2018 CBA students. That's the Yale Center for Business and the Environment, which is our home institution. That is at the heart of our model. So this goes beyond these one-off systems, which are great, you know, but we need to approach this with much grander intent than those systems do. Given the transformative role of clean energy development in Indian country, like we've seen here, I wanted to ask our guest, Kathy, from the beginning of the episode, if the federal government can play a role in promoting clean energy deployment. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the federal government has the major role. The federal government has a, a trust responsibility to Native people, mostly through treaties, but even where there aren't treaties, there is an assumed trust responsibility of the federal government for Native people. The federal government holds tribal land in trust, accordance with several court cases decided in the 1800s. Basically, it means that the federal government must protect tribal lands and provide for tribal members. And in the, especially in the Navajo case, where these people have given so much to the energy supplies of all of the rest of us, it's just a matter of, of justice and fairness to these people to get them the same services the rest of us have taken from them. There's a couple of different things that they could do. First, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is responsible for conditions on reserve. They could, through their Office of Indian Energy, just launch an electrification program for rural reservation residents and tribal lands residents. That has yet to be done. They do have an Office of Indian Energy in the Bureau of Indian Affairs that needs to do this. In addition, the Department of Energy has an Office of Indian Energy that could tackle this as well. Since we recorded this interview, which embarrassingly was before President Biden even took office, 
there has been some progress in federal programs to catalyze renewable energy resources. The Bureau of Indian Affairs is housed within the U.S. Department of the Interior, which for the first time is headed by a Native American woman, Deb Holland. Deb Holland was quoted in 2019 as saying, quote, It's not lost on me that tribes are left behind when new technology and economic opportunities come around, and I want to make sure they don't get left behind in the renewable energy revolution that we're working to make happen, end quote. She's really been doing just that. In July 2021, the Bureau awarded $6.5 million in grants through the Energy and Mineral Development Act. Almost all of the awardees are using the funding for clean energy development. Also, the Department of Renewable and Distributed Generation within the Bureau of Indian Affairs provides technical assistance for identifying and developing renewable resources. Since the dawn of time, Indigenous people were self-reliant and the earth provided for all of their needs food, shelter, energy, medicine, until the devastating effects of colonization, westward expansion, manifest destiny, and the deliberate extermination of the buffalo, which eliminated their economy. Violence, forced assimilations, boarding schools, many tribes like the Northern Cheyenne being relegated to the most godforsaken and barren pieces of land in our country called reservations, All of this has left the surviving indigenous people in our country with no choice but to rely on the very government that put them in this predicament in the first place. This is completely counter to the self-reliance that is at the very core of native culture. Otto and more and more tribal members and leaders every day are saying that they believe the future of their tribes depends on a legitimate way forward and a just transition to a clean energy fueled economy and way of life for their people. They believe this and that's why they have put their trust in us because we know it to be true. This episode was written by me, Katie Evinger, and our executive producer, Vero Borgmeyer. It was edited by Ryan McAvoy. Thanks as well to Heather Fitzgerald for her production support. Our web design graphics were created by Hank Van Assen Designs, and our theme music is Reality Cartwheeled by Dr. Turtle. If you have any questions or comments, as always, please reach out to us at cbay.podcast at yale.edu. That's C-B-E-Y dot at yale.edu. Our website also has tons of resources, especially relevant to this episode, but for all our episodes, and you can find that at cbay.yale.edu forward slash podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to our series on the rural energy transition, and we cannot wait to present our next mini series coming up soon. So if you liked this episode and the others in the series, please leave a review or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us spread this valuable information to others. Thanks again for listening. See you next season.